Wonderful. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And we speak for more than a minute, so one day we'll we'll change the title of the podcast to Medical Justice Minute. Um, I'm joined today with a colleague and a friend. His name is James McClendon. He's a partner lawyer at Hush Blackwell in Austin, Texas, and he'll probably give you his own caveat, but we're going to talk about licensed defense law, among other things, and his expertise is uh, limited to Texas, where he is licensed, but I'll let him do the longer caveat. So his bio is as follows. When Texas physicians, dentists, psychologists, and similar healthcare professionals face licensing and other high-stakes career-threatening issues, they turn to Jim to set things right. And I, I can agree with that because I have sent people from, um, and I'm, I'm in North Carolina, when people call me and they're in Texas, I send them to Jim. So Jim helps clients navigate regulatory and licensing hurdles and return to focusing on their professional work. He represents clients, primarily doctors, before professional boards when faced with complaints and contested reviews, when hospital privileges are at stake and in regulatory matters such as Medicare billing disputes. These are all high stakes ventures. You get them wrong, you may lose your ability to practice and earn a living. So it's helpful to have someone in your corner. Jim began his career as a trial lawyer. He also advises professionals on litigation involving disputes over non-compete agreements, physician group breakups, management agreements, and much, much more. Jim, I'm delighted that you've decided to join us today. Thanks so much for participating. Well, Jeff, thank you for the opportunity from sunny and hot Austin, Texas. Look forward to visiting with you today. Yeah, as we got started, we we reminisced that we have a common Venn diagram. We were both undergrads at the University of Texas at the same time, and I won't date ourselves on the air. People can look at our bios down the road, but we were both there for the exact same four years, and, and University of Texas is a big school in Austin. Uh, with many, many people attending. So it's not shocking that our paths did not um, did not intersect, but then also turns out that he grew up in Houston, as did I. He went to a high school that my wife attended. So a very small world uh, indeed, which is why I try not to piss off too many people. You never know when you're gonna see them again, right? That's good advice. So let's start with the typical caveat. You are licensed in Texas. You're a partner at Hush Blackwell. I think we're going to go through a roadmap of what it's like broadly to to be involved in a medical board uh, complaint. Um, and you know there there certainly are common threads between uh, getting a complaint in Texas and in other states, but there are probably also differences. And we do want to caution our listeners to make sure that when they seek advice, counsel, and are represented, they do so with an attorney license in their state, particularly when there's a hearing before the board. But Jim, do you want to follow up on my abridged version of that with something a bit more detailed? Well, yeah, thank you. Um, I have been helping out physicians before the Texas Medical Board since 1990. I guess to date myself a little bit, I did graduate from law school at the University of Texas in 1983. So everybody can kind of do the math as to my age. And yes, I am old, but I'm proud of it. I'm still uh, very happy in my profession and love helping out uh, doctors and other uh, professionals in all sorts of disputes. I 
have a very good team of lawyers here now at Hush Blackwell. And I kind of jokingly say that I'm just a deep thinker and a problem solver at this point in time. Uh, but like I said, still love what I do. I have extensive experience before the uh, Texas Medical Board. And you're right, each state is going to have its own unique set of rules and procedures. And not only do you want a physician, I mean, excuse me, an, an attorney licensed in your state, part of the art of practicing uh, before the state medical boards is having developed trust and a relationship with the board members so that uh, you know the ins and outs of who works there and their personalities and their idiosyncrasies. Um, so it's very important that you do have a, a licensed professional in your state that is familiar with and regularly appears before the medical board. I think that's very important. <clears throat> there is some overlap, though. Uh, it, it, like, for instance, if you're licensed in multiple states, uh, whatever happens in your state will affect your license potentially in other states. And mm -hmm. you might have to draw upon the expertise of lawyers and other states in which you are licensed, I like to say there's unfortunately a ripple effect. Uh, if you get a sanction in your state or a discipline in your state and you're licensed in multiple states, you can expect that it's going to um, get on the radar of those other states and you're probably going to have to get legal counsel involved in those states as well. Yeah, we're definitely going to chat about the the ripple effect that's certainly a nice euphemism um, so many dominoes start to fall once you have a complaint that has reached fruition in one state you know there there tends to be uh, this effect in many other states and there are people who never give it a second thought because they haven't actually practiced medicine you know from a practical perspective in the other state for decades they just keep it as a license to retire with or maybe the just want to keep their options open and practice in another state down the road. But the more licenses you have, and there's certainly benefits to having more than one license, if you run into a problem with one, you will run often run into a problem with many. Not, not all the time. There are times that you will dodge a bullet, but it's something to be mindful of. Jim, I want to start with, um, I guess, the skill set, because you allude to it in terms of trust and relationships. There is a tendency amongst doctors to assume that the right skill set to to um, to managing a board complaint or defending the license is that of a professional liability defense attorney. Um, and I think that's a mistake. I think there's certainly some overlap between the two, but I like to to explain to doctors that the person who defends your license should be perceived as a diplomat. The person who is fighting for you in court against an allegation of professional liability is a warrior. Um, now, there are certainly exceptions to that, but I would just say broadly, um, if you bring a warrior's mentality and style to the Board of Medicine, there's a good possibility you will be crushed and disappointed. So. I think the people that do do this a lot have developed these relationships and understand the type of tone that needs to be um, addressed. It doesn't mean rolling over. It just means understanding how to work with or against the board uh, to try and achieve a particular outcome. What, what are your thoughts on that? Let's open with that. 
Well, that, that's an excellent observation. Interestingly enough, I do absolutely no medical malpractice work whatsoever. Um, I refer all those cases out. And a lot of times medical board complaints are going along simultaneously with a medical malpractice suit. And so I, mm -hmm. of course, coordinate with the medical malpractice attorney. As you mentioned in my bio, um, I am somewhat of a reformed trial lawyer. I used to do bet the mm -hmm. company litigation. Uh, high stakes litigation, uh, enjoy doing that. There's no greater high than trying a lawsuit, but there's a lot of stress involved with that mm -hmm. also. Um, and so I got this opportunity to segue my practice starting in 1990 in, into this area and have really enjoyed uh, this from a kind of holistic uh, lifestyle viewpoint much more than I did as a trial lawyer. I do have that trial lawyer litigation mindset, though, and I know how to try a lawsuit, and that can be very helpful in uh, uh, medical board matters. Uh, but, but what I've learned over the years is that a cooperative approach with the other side um, in the medical board matter makes much more sense than trying to be obstreperous or obfuscating because the medical board will immediately assume that you're trying to hide something if you go about that approach. Uh, the much better approach in a medical board matter is to admit or acknowledge when you have made a mistake or you didn't have your finest moment that you could have done better. They love to hear that. They love to hear mm -hmm. that you have learned something from the process. Uh, I always try to like to acknowledge that there was a documentation error rather than a standard of care error. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same point in time, um, if you cannot get the result that you want with the medical board through the informal process that we'll go through as, as we're talking here this afternoon, um, and you got to go try the lawsuit, then you do become a warrior. And uh, in Texas, mm -hmm. at least, it. If you can't reach a, a result through the informal process, you go to an administrative law judge trial at the State Office of Administrative Hearings, and it is a contested case. And then you do go into warrior mode because you are going to try to be convincing the judge that there was no violation of the Medical Practices Act so that you can um, come out as unscathed as possible through that process. The typical reaction for doctors who receive a complaint is one of two. Um, one is that they ignore it and don't give it the proper response. In fact, they ignore the deadline, even when the board asks for nothing more than records. And for whatever reason, they just move on and just do other things and ultimately get around to it when, when they can. And the other mode is, you know, freak out, which is, um, you know, this is horrific. I did nothing wrong. Um, I, I, I can't sleep. I can't take any action. Um, these are the two different modes that I see doctors engage in or, or react with. Maybe you can comment on that because I'm sure you've seen at least those types of reactions as well as a handful of others. Well, certainly those are kind of the, the, the polar opposites that I do encounter in my practice and then I get everything in between. I certainly want my clients that do get a medical board complaint to be engaged in the process. They are the best resource for information and defending themselves. 
I know how to format it. I know how to uh, guide them through the process. But at the end of the day, they're the doctor and I'm not. Um, mm -hmm. And so I want the doctor to be engaged, but I always try to convince my clients and tell my clients, and to this aspect, I'm somewhat of an armchair psychologist or psychiatrist to many of therapists, to many of my clients. I have to sometimes talk them off the ledge, as you say, and convince them that uh, I'm going to get them through this. I provide them assurances. There's almost nothing you can do. Uh, well, not that's not true. There's only a couple things that you can do that will absolutely cause you to lose your license and revocation and suspension are in play. Otherwise, uh, I can pretty much get you through the process. Um, you might have some scars on you, but I have to talk my clients into continuing to do what they do best, which is practice medicine and try to keep their mind off of this as much as possible as we go through the process, because I don't want them to divert their attention from what their number one thing to do is, which is practicing medicine and helping out patients. Um, in Texas, we have this problem a little bit, I believe, and I've, I've talked to the medical board about this in Texas, that sometimes doctors don't ignore these complaint letters, but they don't realize they've come in. They're, they're mailed via regular mail. They're not sent certified. They don't have confidential on the outside of the envelope. They don't say, time-sensitive deadline open immediately. It's just a letter addressed to the doctor from the Texas Medical Board, and inside it is this, you know, ticking time bomb. And since it's been sent by regular mail, um, it, you, you're depending on the U.S. mail to get it there timely, which doesn't always happen. And then sometimes the staff members are the ones opening the mail. Oftentimes they are, and they may not get around to it immediately. And I have lots of situations where I'm contacted three or four days before the complaint response is due saying, hey, we just either got this letter or um, it didn't get brought to my attention to now. These big doctor groups, sometimes it doesn't make it into their inbox for a while. Mm -hmm. It's rare, Jeff, that a doctor will just absolutely ignore the letter. They, a lot of times they will respond on their own and not get an attorney involved or contact their carrier. Uh, to get an attorney involved on their behalf, and then they don't, you know, pay much attention to it or take it seriously enough until they get the follow-up letter from the board saying, we've gone ahead and opened an investigation on this matter. I am so glad you brought up the point about the how the letters get mailed, at least in Texas, by the Texas Medical Board. Um, that's a plug for making sure that your address of record is correct on your profile on the website. I know Amen, every, every state treats it differently. So listen to this story. So um, we have a client who mostly, in fact, entirely practices in uh, Colorado where he's been for decades. And I do mean decades, but he started his career in California and he's maintained a license in California for, you know, for decades, intending potentially to go back after he retires. I think he still has a home there. But he hasn't really stepped foot and he hasn't practiced in California in decades. Anyway, he got a board complaint in Colorado and was given a letter of admonition, which is the lowest level of discipline. And in, in his estimation, he thought it wasn't inappropriate. He never defended against it. I think he was close to 70 when this happened. So he just basically 
accepted it and went back to work the next day where he's an extremely talented surgeon. Um, in parallel, he kind of forgot that he had a California license. California sent a letter to him based on what they thought was his address of record. And it made it the it made it to his um, the correct building. It made it to the correct floor. Did not make it to the correct suite number. Did not make it to the correct suite number. And so he didn't find out about it till California had revoked his license. And this created this cascade of doom because he's an employee of a healthcare system. And in its bylaws, it says that you cannot continue as an employee if your license hasn't been revoked anywhere. Now, remember, he's not stepped foot in California to practice in decades, but his primary livelihood in Colorado is now being threatened by this reciprocal action because somehow it's not clear what happened. The address of record was just screwed up, whether it was the board or the doctor, nobody knows. But I want to use this as a big pitch just to make sure that your address of record is correct. And the thing that's so maddening about this is that the the California Medical Board was spamming him with his correct email address with all types of notices during COVID, COVID this, COVID that. So it's not it's it's perfectly clear they had his email address, but they relied upon a single address as opposed to the fact that you know almost everybody's got a home address, everybody's got an email address, everybody's got a business address, and they said, well, we're only doing it based on this one address. We're not giving you a second chance. Anyway, this is being litigated, and I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed it'll have a positive outcome, but it's been extremely painful for him. The point of all this is that if you've got a license in more than one state, or even you just have it in one state, for God's sake, make sure the board has your correct license, uh, your your correct address. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, story. yeah that is a horror story, and I can't think of one like that off the top of my head, but I, I mean, it's it, once a month I get hired on matters where the uh, doctor never got the complaint letter in time to respond. And it, in Texas, that means it's going to automatically go to an investigation. Now you continue to get to defend yourself and respond to the investigation at that point in time and do a mea culpa that uh, you, uh, didn't get the letter and you weren't intentionally ignoring the board. But, you know, a couple of important things there. One, at least in Texas, you, you have two addresses on the medical board's website. One is your public address that's on your physician profile that the public can see. And that is almost always your practice address. Right. But there's a second address, which is your mailing address, which the public cannot see. And you need to make sure both of those addresses are current at all times. And uh, the other thing is if you are in a big group or, uh, or in a practice where you don't get your own mail directly and open it, be sure and alert your staff that if ever there is a letter from the Texas Medical Board, two things. One, bring it to my attention immediately. And two, please do not open it uh, because you mm -hmm. as the doctor have a right to uh, have a confidentiality of, through the complaint process, and uh, you may want to bring your staff members into the complaint and help them respond to it, but at the same point in time, you may not want them to know that it's going on, and you have the absolute right uh, statutorily, at least in Texas, and I presume it's probably this way in every other state, uh, that, that the process is confidential as you go through it. 
I find it shocking that it's not even marked confidential on the outside of the envelope. I mean, things that get shipped uh, that are confidential every day across the country will take the one second to stamp confidential on it. Is that something that's never come up before in, in the Texas Medical Board? Has it been brought to their attention? Um, or is that deliberate and they just really don't care? I, I hope it's not deliberate. I have certainly brought it to their attention before. I'm sure other practitioners have as well. Um, and I think in this day and age that you don't also uh, send a copy via email, uh, which goes directly into the physician's email inbox, um, is um, something that needs to be addressed, quite frankly. Yeah. So um, the reaction that people get um, sometimes is a little misguided when they get a board complaint. Uh, sometimes they pay less attention to it than a professional liability claim. I generally tell people that if you get a professional liability claim, 99 times out of 100, because you have insurance, it will be disposed of. You may not like how it gets disposed of, but you'll still be able to practice medicine for the most part and do so on your terms. Um, if you have if you have a board complaint that doesn't turn out, you know, in an optimal way or even a reasonable way, you may lose your ability to practice medicine, which is how you put food on the table. It's your livelihood. It's how you make money. So if I had to catalog which of the two are more important, of course they're both important, but I would argue that maintaining your license in good standing is probably even more important than just you know prevailing in a professional liability case. Sometimes they go together. Sometimes a board complaint and, and a med mal case go together. But I think if I had to prioritize, I would I would suggest I would put more effort into you know resolving a licensed defense case successfully. Um, and Jeff, that's exactly right because like, like I alluded to earlier, I can get you through the process or, or other attorneys that are helping you in your particular state can get you through this process. There's only a couple of things that you can do that will result in you losing your license. Um, there, um, the other thing that you certainly want to avoid, and if you don't defend yourself adequately, is you could potentially get a restriction placed on your license. Mm -hmm. And whereas you can continue to practice medicine, you have to abide by that restriction. And then that restriction though, unfortunately, is gonna have its own set of ripple effects um, on your insurance contracts, hospital privileges, employment, all that sort of stuff. So it is imperative that a physician defend him or herself uh, in front of their medical board when they get one of these complaint letters. And in Texas, at least, most medical malpractice insurance companies now provide for the cost of defense and they will pay for the Jim McClendons of the world to represent them as they go through the process. So it's a policy benefit that you should take your take advantage of and notify your carrier immediately when you get this letter um, and have them uh, help you find defense counsel. Jim, that is true that um, as a perk of having professional liability, coverage, they will often throw in uh, legal defense coverage to the tune of twenty-five or even $50,000. And you can even add to those limits if you are, are so inclined and the cost for to add to those limits are not particularly high. So I'm a big fan of taking advantage of the fact that you typically have coverage 
I think what many people don't understand um, is that if if all you have is $25,000 in legal coverage, that may cover you and it may not. And if you have to go to uh, to administrative law judge, it probably will not cover everything. So I think it's important to try and get as much coverage as you're, you know as you can reasonably afford. Um, but the the cost for this type of rider pales in comparison to what people typically pay for professional liability coverage. Has that been your experience on this? Yeah, Jeff, and and I, I will say that based on my vast experience, and I've probably helped out six to eight hundred physicians. I don't know how many. Ninety-seven percent of the cases can be handled within policy limits, and you're right. Typically, it's twenty-five thousand dollars. The ones that end up exceeding policy limits are the ones that uh, go to an administrative law judge trial or start out as a temporary suspension where there's kind of a mini trial right off the bat uh, with witnesses and cross-examination and the whole kit and caboodle legal term there um, (laughs) for, uh, for protecting your license from a temporary suspension those tend to get very expensive as well. But 97% of the time, the run of the mill Texas Medical Board complaint can be handled within the $25,000 policy. Well within that limit. Well, that's great news. I I will also make the pitch that if you do get a board complaint, I highly recommend tapping into that and getting an attorney to help. Here's why. I think there's a tendency among some doctors to see a complaint and go, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure I can just respond to this, and surely they'll see the wisdom of uh, of my care. And not surprisingly, sometimes the response looks like it was dictated into Siri. It's unprofessional with typos. But more importantly, sometimes things are stated <laughs> that you kind of want a do-over down the road once you do get an attorney. But once once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it is much more challenging to put it back in. And I think clients are better served having a professional response drafted uh, with attention to both style and content in advance than to try to uh, to play catch up down the road and say, oh, I didn't really mean to say that. That was a typo. What, what are your thoughts on that? Completely agree. The uh Medical uh, malpractice companies typically have a panel of attorneys like myself that they have vetted and used in the past and have uh, good experience in this area. So one of the things that turning this case over to your malpractice carrier does is help you get in touch if you don't already have an attorney that kind of specializes in this area, in touch with an attorney that does specialize in this area. Uh, second big advantage of it is that the, the bills go to the insurance company and not the physician, and the physician is not out of pocket other than what quite possibly a deductible. And then, yes, experience does matter in this area, Jeff. There is no question about it. Um, I have seen a lot of handwritten, not handwritten responses, but self-done responses by physicians where they go off into tangents and um, mm-hmm. Uh, actually raise issues that weren't even brought up in the complaint letter that end up becoming the focus of the complaint on down the road or the investigation on down the road, or they don't ever adequately address the uh, complaint itself and 
uh, talk in terms of why in the they cop an attitude and that's the worst thing you can do in your response letter is why in the heck are you writing me this letter i'm a very good doctor i didn't do anything wrong go away and that is not the right approach you may well have not done anything wrong but you want to educate the board in your response as to why you did not do anything wrong and copying an attitude is not going to get you there it's funny one of my pet peeves in terms of a potential response is when the doctor writes back uh, writes back i always do x y and z so there's no way this allocation uh, allegation could be correct and when people use the word always that sets them up for a potential problem either there or down the road it's like um when a couple is in counseling you're saying you always do x y and z and and almost nobody does always all the time they may do it frequently <laughs> But I think the word always, as an example, just sets one up for failure down the road. That's inside baseball. That's the type of thing you know and I know. Uh, but it's the type of thing that I think doctors don't appreciate until it's being challenged. And, and the thing is, medicine is complicated. It's complex and complicated. And every patient is different. There are times we you know, make exceptions to a guided rule. And we may do something different. And if that's the case, we won't be doing something always We'll be doing something most of the time. And I know that sounds very subtle, the difference between always or most of the time, but it, it kind of matters when uh, when the stakes are so high. I thought I'd throw that one out. Um, let's dive into uh, the weeds here. You had talked about, and let's start with a couple of the things that a doctor could do, which ultimately will be damaging to their career that may turn into a summary or permanent uh, summary suspension or a permanent revocation. I mean, what are, in terms of the parade of horribles, what are the things that are hard to recover from just as a fact pattern? And I know every case is different, but um, you had mentioned that there are two that come to mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, give it some the, color. The two that come to mind immediately are uh, don't have sex with a patient. If you have sex with a patient, uh, more than likely you're going to get your license temporarily suspended or in the long run face severe challenges to the continuation of your practice. Um, inappropriate text messaging to a patient, I can probably help you get through, but it's not going to be fun and you probably would have a uh, either have to have a chaperone in the room as a restriction or a restriction from seeing um, uh, the, the sex of the patient that you were inappropriately texting with, but crossing the boundary, uh, inappropriate touching or inappropriate uh, or having sex with a patient is going to basically be the death knell to your practice. The other one is getting convicted of a felony related to health care. Um, in Texas, that's an automatic revocation of your license. It most often happens in connection with uh, intentional overbilling or Medicaid or Medicare fraud, those type of things. Uh, it's not good to be uh, arrested for any type of certain felonies also, like uh, child pornography or, uh, uh, you know, uh, any any of those type of really just horrible type fact committing a murder or, uh, anything like that 
you certainly don't want to deal drugs out of your office. I've had a couple of those type of situations. Uh, and even if you're, you know, quote unquote, uh, prescribing legal drugs, if you are uh, running some type of a pill mill, uh, which are very much on the radar here in Texas, or sometimes undercover agents will come into the physician's office when there is a suspicion that there is um, inappropriate prescribing going on there. And the, uh, the, the agent will come in and say, hey, I've got a hurt shoulder. Can I get some hydrocodone and uh, some Soma and some benzos? And you don't even look at the shoulder and you say, sure. Um, those are the kind of things that will end up in being severe challenges to you continuing to practice medicine the rest of your life. You opened up the door to sex with a patient, and I want to expand on that because there are certainly um, black and white situations. There are also gray zones. And, and I, I'll start by commenting that it doesn't matter what your sex is or your gender. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. One of the highest profile cases that I can recall where a doctor had their license revoked, it was up in Canada, but the principles apply. She was an oncologist who saw a somewhat younger patient in the emergency room that was diagnosed emergently with either leukemia or lymphoma. So she started uh, treatment with chemotherapy um, as an inpatient, and um, the patient was somewhat flirtatious with the female oncologist, and she reacted and responded, and you know they went back and forth. She would start, uh, she would actually spend the night in the hospital room with him while he was getting chemotherapy. They started having sex. They started having a relationship. She ended up going to, um, to stay at his house on overnight stays, and he was living with his parents. And um, there was no problem at, from the patient's perspective at that point until she decided it was time to get serious and have a real relationship with a colleague. So she calls up the, uh, this patient, and, and it was still a current patient, so she was still taking care of him, and she said, hey, um, you know, this was fun while it lasted, but, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, and I'm looking for some, someone who's my professional peer to have a long-term relationship with, um, have a nice day, or have a nice life, <clears throat> and um, he was, uh, he wanted to, uh, to meet with her, and she said, look, I don't think there's going to be anything productive to come from that. And so what did he do? He filed a complaint with the equivalent of the Board of Medicine in Canada. They opened up an investigation. They ultimately revoked her license. And it's particularly challenging in Canada because they have a shortage of oncologists. So by removing this one oncologist, this one specialty from the, its ecosystem, not only did this doctor have a problem, but a lot of people with cancer had to wait a little bit longer uh, to be seen. So um, having sex with a patient is an, an equal gender problem. Um, more often than not, it's the male in the crosshairs, but I would argue it's not the only one who's in the crosshairs, so everybody should at least pay attention to that. Have you, have you noticed that um, this, this also does affect women? And they also need to be to pay attention to to the problem and follow the dictum. Clearly, it can apply no matter what the gender of the physician. Um, 
I think it's important for every doctor to realize there is no such thing as consensual sex with a patient. No matter how consensual the doctor thinks it is or how consensual the patient may believe it is. And, and Jeff, in your story there, everything was going swimmingly for everybody until it wasn't. Um, and then the rug gets pulled out from under you. And I've had situations where everything seemed to be going swimmingly until one of their spouses found out. Um, and right. then they're the ones who end up filing the medical board complaint. And I was actually in a medical board hearing one time where the DPS officers had to come into the room to uh, waiting room to separate the uh, the husband and uh, the, the lady that was involved in the affair um, who was going to appear there. And that changed the medical board rule here in Texas, where they let the witnesses wait elsewhere now and rather than put them into the same waiting room. So uh, no matter how consensual, the, the point I want to make is no matter how consensual you think it is, if it is with a patient, it is not consensual under all the ethical rules that govern physicians. And that's a key point, having sex with a patient. So one question would be, when does a patient not become a patient? And are there some patients that you can never have sex with? And I'll try to divide the universe into two situations. One would be one where the doctor acquires intimate information about the patient and is in a power position where the patient could never be perceived as consenting on their own. And Two situations in particular would be, one, a psychiatrist. So if you have a relationship with, I mean, if you have a psychiatric relationship with a patient, I would argue that no matter what, you should never have sex with that patient. Okay, that's number one. Number two would be uh, a patient who is in a life-altering situation where, you know, the patient is extremely grateful that um, their life is changed for the better. For example, oncology or a trauma patient, you know, where their head goes through the windshield and the doctor nurses his patient back to health. Uh, I would also argue that long after the former relationship is terminated, uh, I, I think it's a bad idea to have, you know, to engage in sex with a patient. But there are other situations where the type of relationship has been brief and tangential. Let me give this color. So let's say for, in this example, a patient comes to an urgent care center and has a laceration on their finger. The doctor sews up the, the laceration and that's the end of it. There, there's no further doctor-patient relationship. And let's say he even goes further and formalizes the termination relationship and says, we're not going to do any type of dating or anything for six months. Um, in that particular situation, I would argue that it's probably less black and white and it may be less problematic. And let me change the fact pattern a little bit more. Let's say next that you're a doctor in a rural area, you know, so the community itself has 600 people you're single, you're the only, it's, it's the only community for a hundred miles uh, around and you want the ability to have a social life. Um, and so the question is, if you've been attracted to that community, do you have to take a vow of celibacy or just go to the metro areas for, um, for any type of sexual activity or, you know, or dating? 
Um, or, you know, is there, are there situations where, you know, based on the facts, it is possible to engage in a, a sexual relationship, particularly if you formally terminated the relationship and you wait a, you know, some particular period of time. I know I've given you a thousand facts here, so feel free to pick and choose the ones that make sense well, to you on your own stuff. terms. No, good stuff. Um, you know, the, the rule doesn't talk in terms of sex with a patient, and I probably was throwing that term out there maybe a little too loosely. Um, it talks about having an inappropriate relationship with a patient, right. and that can include, you know, dating a patient even. Mm -hmm. um, I think under the fact scenarios that you have put out there, uh, for psychiatrists, I think it's almost an absolute forever no-no. I don't know that Texas has codified that in its Medical Practices Act, but I believe the, uh, the Board of Ethics for psychiatrists and their professional boards have made it clear that thou shalt not ever have a relationship with a patient or it might be like a two-year waiting period. No, I think you're correct. I think they basically call, I mean, our psychiatrist can, can write in and correct us, but I, my understanding is it's a never rule that once you've established a psychiatric relationship with a patient from an ethical perspective, you just cannot do it down the road. And if you have an ethical violation, the board can always jump in and say one acted unprofessionally with its, you know, it's, catchment term for all the things that aren't enumerated in the Medical Practice Act. Yeah, um, and in fact, if, if, if you lose your board certification, that would be something that would be reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, mm -hmm. and that would get you on the, at least the Texas Medical Board radar, or when you're renewing your license, you would have to, you know, acknowledge that you did uh, have your board certification taken away from you. But Texas does not have a hard and fast rule, and I don't know if any other jurisdictions do too, about how long the waiting period is or what the extenuating circumstances. But I think under your scenarios, Jeff, if done properly, and I would certainly recommend and encourage that a formal termination of patient-physician relationship letter be sent and put into the file, mm -hmm. uh, and it made clear that uh, this relationship blossomed as a result of this incidental meeting uh, in connection with your health care, uh, but blossomed afterwards and after the patient-physician relationship was terminated, I would feel very good about getting you through that scenario at the Texas Medical Board if, in fact, the relationship went awry in the future and uh, the patient decided to file a complaint against the physician. There's a very famous case out of Pennsylvania. There's a family practice doctor who was seeing both a husband and wife for, you know, general practice issues. Um, during this relationship, this this family practice doc was having an affair with um, with a wife, and um, so, but he was still taking care of both husband and wife at the same time. And the husband would come in and say, you know, I'm. I'm really stressed out. I'm having this nagging feeling. My wife isn't into me any longer. And the the treatment that the family practice doctor gave was to pile on with various psychotropic medications to say, here, let me help ease your anxiety without paying attention to the fact that uh, he was the source of anxiety 
because he was having an ongoing affair. So um, you'll probably predict how this ends. So um, I think at some point, I can't remember who called it off, but it was likely the doctor called it off or the wife decided she was going to reconcile with her husband. But however that took place, the husband found out about this and was appropriately shocked, saying, I can't believe you were taking care of both of us, piling on medications to me when you were the source of my my grief. And so he um, filed a board complaint, but he also filed a professional liability case. And what was fascinating in terms of the res now this became very public and it went up to an appellate court. He was suing for, I think, malpractice as well as intentional infliction of emotional distress. And interestingly enough, and this was, I think, 20 years ago, so it's a dated case, and I'm not sure it would reach the same outcome now. In fact, I, I'm positive it wouldn't. The, the highest courts in Pennsylvania concluded that because he was a family practice doctor and not a psychiatrist, while his behavior may have been unsavory, <clears throat> they couldn't conclude that he had violated some standard of care. And so he he walked. Now, he didn't really walk because this became very public. And I think he was shamed into submission. But um, I don't think people should rely upon that now. I think to your Absolutely point. Absolutely not. I know. And this is 20 years ago. Can you imagine how that, you know, how that would be received today in the age of the Internet? Now, uh, most would... most fact patterns that get presented to me, I'm, I'm very proud to go defend in front of the medical board. I would not be proud to defend those facts in front of the Texas Medical Board. That would be, uh, you're not going to keep your license in Texas under that fact scenario or almost any other jurisdiction, I wouldn't yeah. think. They, they should probably start looking overseas for potential opportunities doing medical mission work, I would argue, yes. at that point. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.